as you, we've told you several times during this series, we are actually teaching something that we have been taught by a mentor of ours. And we're just trying to pass it along as accurately as we possibly can as we're following the life of Jesus through the eyewitness account, the eyewitness biography uh, of the gospel writer Mark. And um, so kind of as we, as we get started this morning, um, and McKinley, I've, I've, right out of the gate, I've got some questions that I want to put up on the screen. And the first one is this. Have you ever wondered this question? How do you access God? Um, how do you access God? How do you join up? You know, how do you join up with God? How do you get an audience with God? Have you ever thought about that? How do you, how do you approach God? Um, th- these are questions that, quite honestly, over the centuries, people have been asking questions like this. Uh, regardless of the cultural line that uh, the question is being asked, um, you know, if you, you were to ask over the centuries, different cultures, different people groups, different time periods, you would get a wide range of answers as to how do we access God? How do we have, you know, how do we get that audience with God? With God? You'd get a lot of different answers. Um, some people would answer, well, I think God, I think of God kind of as this, and, and I hate to use the word bloodthirsty, but I think it's fair in this context, kind of this bloodthirsty tyrant. He's up there, and we really can only access him or appease him by good behavior. We can really only access him or appease him. Uh, you know, he, it's, it's, it's that concept. It's really kind of a classical concept that God's up there, everybody's on a string, and, um, you know, we're, we're, he's just kind of playing with people. That's kind of a very Greek concept, you know, he's just, that's God. And that might be you. Uh, You may not think of it in those terms, but that may be kind of the way that you think about God. Um, Others think he's kind of more of this spiritual force. This is really more of a prevailing concept today in the world we live in today. And we feel like, well, he's just kind of this force. He's more this idea, Uh, a lot of different, you know, ways to look at God. And we really can access God. We have access to God anytime we want. On any terms imaginable, there really is no standard. There really is no uh, expectation, and and God's more like the e- eternal butler just waiting around the corner, you know, ring bell in case, break glass in case of emergency. And that may be you. That may be kind of the way you have, where you have landed on that question of how can we connect with God? How can we access God? Um, and absolutely no judgment on that. I'm just kind of, you know, these are some different ways that people think that, you know, culturally. Um, and even still, there may be some of you here this morning, some of you watching us online, where you would have to honestly say, I don't really think we can get the answer to that question. I don't think that question can be answered. Those questions that you just put on the screen, I don't think we can answer that. And if we can answer that, I don't think we can accomplish it. I, I just, I don't know that it's possible. Um, and again, if that's you, that's, it's okay I just disagree with all of those answers, me personally. And the reason is because I think that when we look in Scripture, which is where the answers to all of these questions are found, not my opinion, not Harley's opinion, not your opinion, not your mama's opinion, Scripture, um, I don't think that any of those descriptions are accurate. I I really don't. Um, I don't think God's a bully. I don't think God's a butler. But I do think he can be known. In fact, I would take it so far as to say I think God wants to be known. I think God wants to be known. I think God has revealed himself because that's kind of what we've been doing as a part of this particular series. That's one of the things that we're discovering because as we're combing through Scripture in search of him, um, what we are discovering, what we're kind of discovering that Mark seems to be pushing, this agenda that it would seem that he is pushing is this idea that Jesus is a king, right? We've talked about that quite a bit. What are we in, week five? So we've talked about it now for four weeks. Jesus 
is a king. Jesus is the loving king that you have been looking for, that they had been looking for. And today, we're not all that familiar with kingship. Uh, we really don't have kings today. Uh, we, we're, we're not all that familiar with that concept. But what we are familiar with is with the concept of, of position, right? We're, we're familiar with the concept of a person or of a position being unattainable. We don't feel like we can get to that level and, and attain that position. Um, we don't really know how to connect with that position. We really don't know if we can connect with a person. Let me see if I can better explain it. Like the president, you know? We, we just... We know that the president's there. We know that the president exists. We know that the president is involved in, in, in one way or another with our lives. We just don't know how to connect. We don't know how to approach that position. Or maybe a business tycoon. You know, you, you immediately think of Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos. Or maybe, maybe you, you think of, you know, somebody that seems unattainable. Maybe, appropriately for today, Taylor Swift, Right? Not quite. I just don't know that I'm ever going to. Now, I've seen some people walk in this morning with a lot of Taylor Swift regalia on, but can we approach Taylor Swift? So, uh, look, basically what I'm, what I'm trying to say, the point I'm trying to make is, it's that question, how do we approach this king? You know, how do we approach, how do we approach King Jesus? What, what happens if, if me, a, a very average, very normal, very simple, and certainly very imperfect person tries to approach this king. Um, we are, I'll tell you right now, disclaimer, we're going into some choppy waters this morning. I would encourage you to take the seatbelt on your right, buckle it, uh, grab a hold of the uh, armrest, because we are going into some choppy waters this morning with the topic that we're unpacking. Because um, we're jumping into scripture this morning, where again, as I've already said, that is where we find all of the answers to all of these questions that we're asking, not only this morning, but in general, all of these questions. We don't want to go anywhere other than scripture to find the answers. Um, because what Scripture describes is God. Scripture describes Scripture describes Jesus. And Scripture, as we've talked about, describes Jesus as being completely God. Right? We, we talked about that really a lot in week one. Scripture describes Jesus somehow as being completely God. And yet, at the same time, Scripture also describes Jesus as being completely man. Completely God and completely man. And yet... Scripture also describes Jesus as completely man with no sin. Now, that's pretty significant. That's some pretty significant statements that we have up there on the screen. So Jesus in his humanity, completely man. Jesus as a man, really not that unsimilar to you, not that unsimilar to me. Jesus got tired, right? Sometimes, sometimes, according to Scripture, Jesus got exhausted. He got tired to the point of exhaustion, like you probably have as well. We've said it many, many times before, but it bears repeating. During Jesus' ministry, roughly three years, people want to see Jesus. They follow him everywhere he goes. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to see what he's going to do next. I mean, it was a, it was a big, big thing. We don't accurately think about how big of a deal Jesus was in that first century for those three years. It was a, can you imagine everyone wanting to touch you? You know, I mean, some of you are like, that sounds great. Some of you are like, that is like, that's awful. Everyone wanted a piece of Jesus. And so sometimes Jesus needed a break, which is what Mark describes. So interesting. Mark chapter 7, Mark describes Jesus needing a break. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say he took a vacation. Not going to say that. But he did go to the coast. He went to the coast. 
I'm just saying, you know. Um, so anyway, here we go. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus leaves Galilee, and he goes north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know where he was going or the house that he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Again, just leaning into that idea that everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. He was the rock star, right? He wanted a break, but he couldn't get one. So what we have here in verse 24, Jesus leaving these Jewish areas, these predominantly Jewish areas, the nation Israel as we think of it today, he leaves the northern part of Israel in Galilee and he goes into Gentile lands, non-Jewish lands, non-monotheistic world, non-Jewish you know, religion that everything that we believe as Christians kind of is built upon. This is a part of the world in a time period where none of that existed for the most part. In fact, we, I, McKinley, do I have a map? I think I've got it. Here we go. Here we go. I love, I'm a map guy. Oh, that was cool. Um, so this, oh, that's really cool. It must be blue. So right, right in here, you know, we're, we're up in the area right here around Galilee. That's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus goes to the north and he goes to, like I told you, he goes to the coast, Tyree. This is the area known as Phoenicia. Takes a break. He gets away. You can take that off the screen. Uh, thank you, McKinley. But that just kind of gives you an idea where Jesus is going. He goes from, from Galilee and he goes into the area known as Phoenicia because Jesus needs a rest, but it doesn't work out because right away, according to Mark, right away there's a woman that hears about him and she comes and she falls at his feet. They're in Tyre, they're in, they're in Phoenicia. Now, it's important to know for context, this is a non-Jewish woman. She is a Gentile and she hears that Jesus is now in her Gentile town. He's in Tyre, he's in Phoenicia, he's on the coast, the Mediterranean Sea. And she hears about it. And this woman boldly approaches Jesus. This woman does something that probably was very difficult for her to do as a non-Jewish woman. More on that in just a second. According to Mark, her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit. That's the problem. And, and she begged Jesus to cast out the demon from her daughter since she was a Gentile. So Mark makes the decision to point this out. Since she is a Gentile, since she was born in Syrian Phoenicia. Now, for just a moment, we need to back up a little bit and we need to give you a little ancient grammar. If you're not a, I apologize for that. Um, but the verb that we have translated as beg in verse 23, it's our English word verb, it actually is, is what is known as the present progressive form, which means it implies that this woman begs Jesus to heal her daughter and then she keeps on begging. She doesn't stop. She begs and she pleads and she begs and she pleads. Please, please, please do this for me. Nothing can stop her. She approaches Jesus and she has a need and she begs Jesus to fulfill this need. Matthew actually gives a little bit more information on this account. It's in Matthew chapter 15. It's one of the many parallel accounts in Scripture, specifically in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They kind of have a lot of the same information, a little bit different information here, detail there, different perspective here. But um, Matthew actually tells us that as this woman is begging, right, this non-Jewish Gentile woman in this Phoenician town is begging Jesus to do this for her. The disciples, Matthew tells us that the disciples actually want Jesus to send this woman away, get rid of her. She is a problem. She is bothersome. But as parents, we can kind of relate to this because there's nothing that you will not do for your children. There's no, there's no step that you will not take for your kids. And this woman has to get to Jesus, and miraculously, she does. She gets to Jesus in her Gentile town, she finds her way to the king. But, like I said, very choppy waters incoming, because here's what Jesus tells her in verse 27. Jesus says, first, speaking to this 
Gentile woman. First, I should feed the children. My own family. The Jews. It isn't right. Choppy waters. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Whoo. Jesus. Holy smoke. That's a, that's a little harsh there, sir. I'm pretty sure you just insulted her. In fact, I don't think you just insulted her. She insulted, he insulted me. I'm not Jewish. I'm Gentile. I'm non, non-Jewish. I mean, dogs? Really? Like I said, choppy waters. You know, I mean, understandably. But it's actually not. And here's the reason why. Because I want you to think about this. For us today, we love our dogs. Some of us do. I, I don't particularly, but that's another conversation. Um, but a lot of you love your dogs. In fact, some people love their dogs more than some people. Right? Oh, Amy, I didn't want that Amy, but there it is. You're right. I, you're right, right? Certainly people, we don't really like that much. So for us today, this concept of dog, you know, but, but you've got to understand, in, in, the, in the first century, it was very, very different. In the first century, most dogs are wild. They're scavengers. They are dirty. Um, so calling someone a dog would have been an unbelievable insult. And you're like, okay, you're not helping <laughs> Jesus' case here. But Jesus actually is not insulting her. Here's why. Because for the most part, this concept of dog, we think of a dog and we think of our dog. We think of, you know, your dog. <laughs> The dog that you love and the dog that's so important to you. But when they would have heard dog, they would have heard scavenger, wild animal, nasty, dirty. That's not what Jesus actually said. The word that we have is dog, but that's not the word that we have because Jesus is actually teaching in a parable here. It's a metaphor. Um, He does this all the time, by the way. And our biggest clue as to why this wasn't an insult is because of the word that we are given for dog in verse 27. The word actually means Puppies. Specifically, the word means pets. Which would have been an important difference because in the first century, there was really not a lot of that. Today, everybody has one. First century, dog would have been dirty, nasty, but in this case, Jesus specifically says pets. Here's why that matters. Because what Jesus is actually saying to this mother, this non-Jewish mother, he's saying, ma'am, you know how the family eats. You know the order. First, the children get to eat, and then you know they get to come to the table. They sit at the table, and they get to eat. And then after the children eat, you know that, and now the pet puppies get to eat. They eat next. It's not right to violate that order. The puppies cannot have food from the table before the children do. Matthew's account actually gives a little bit more information, a little longer version. According to Matthew, Jesus said, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. First, to the Jews. First, to the children at the table as the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. But of course, you know and I know because we are on this side of the cross, and the reason we know is because of the eyewitness testimonies that tell us this. We know that after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus immediately tells his disciples to go to all nations. So Jesus is really not insulting this woman. What he's actually saying to her is, ma'am, please understand. And and I'm putting words in Jesus' mouth. I'm paraphrasing, so I know that. But he's saying, ma'am, please understand. There's an order. No one is going to be excluded. No one's going to be left out. Israel first, the children at the table first. 
And then the Gentiles and all the other nations. Next, the, the pets. To which, completely understanding, this woman is like, oh, Jesus, of course. Ah, of course, Jesus, I'll come back later. When you have time, when it's my turn. And if you know the story, you know that is not what happens at all. In fact, the encounter does not end right here. Um, this lady has a comeback for Jesus. I really like this lady a lot, by the way. And you're going to see why here in just a second. Verse 28, she replies to Jesus. So Jesus has given her this, this metaphor, this, this, this parable. And she replies, well, that's true, Lord. That's true. But even the dogs, again, thank pets, but even the pets, even those puppies that are under the table, they get to eat the scraps from the children's plates who are at the table. Jesus, King Jesus. The puppies get to eat from the table too. And I'm here now. I need my scrap. Sometimes this gets lost on us, but right here Jesus is telling her this parable, right? He's, he's telling her this parable. And then she actually is answering Jesus within the parable. I don't want you to miss that. Because this Non-Jewish woman gets it. She understands. She responds to the challenge. It's like, okay, I get it, Jesus. I get it. I get what you're saying. I'm not from Israel. I do not by birth have a place at the table. I am not in the family. I get it. I don't worship the God of Israel. I don't. I know that. And therefore, because of that, I do not have a place at the table like the nation of Israel does. I get it. But she's not offended by it. She doesn't claim a right to it. She says, I may not have a place at your table yet. But if there's anything that has been obvious over the last several years of listening to what you say and watching what you do and the way you go about your business and the miracles and the signs and all of the things that have this region of the world turned upside down, if there's anything that has become perfectly clear, it is that your table is plenty big for everyone in the world. Your table is big enough. And Jesus, I just need you to help me now. She approaches him. She, she engages Jesus. She respectfully engages Jesus. Now today, this is different for us because for, the ten, for our tendency today, um, we only understand pressing our rights, what we think is fair and what we think is just. We look at it as in, you owe it to me and you better pay up. But what she's saying, and I don't want you to miss this, I think this is on the screen. What she's saying is Jesus I'm asking you to give me what I deserve not on the basis of my goodness. I, I'm not asking you to give me what I deserve based on my goodness. I'm not asking you to give me what I think I deserve based on what I can do. That's not what I'm asking. Jesus, I'm asking you to give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness. Not based on mine. Because I know I, I, I don't have a place at the table. And I just need it right now. I, I need you to help me right now. She doesn't back down. She actually respectfully approaches Jesus. She answers within the parable. And apparently, according to Mark, Jesus really likes the answer because he says, good answer. Now, go home. The demon has left your daughter. She arrives home. She finds her little girl lying quietly in bed. demon was gone. Jesus answers her for it. Jesus I'm not asking you to give me what I deserve based on my goodness, based on what I can do. Give me what I don't deserve. 
Because I don't meet the standard. I'm not at the table. And I know it. She trusts that he is the Messiah. She trusts that he is sufficient. And she trusts that he has a vast surplus of his sufficiency. She believes. She trusts that this king has more than enough to provide for a little someone like her. She approaches him. This is a powerful contrast that this woman is compared with the 12 disciples, the men that are the disciples. If you ever, think about this. Jesus has to tell his disciples the same thing over and over and over and over, and they still don't get it. I'm talking, we're going to really unpack this like in a few weeks, but man, they don't get it. But here Jesus tells this woman one time, one sentence, and she gets it. She understands. She receives it. She believes it. And then she even goes so far as to answer within the, the metaphor, within the parable. This, this, this is going to like, you know, check some of your boxes. Um, in Mark's gospel, as far as we can tell, it's until chapter 7. With this Gentile woman in the, in the Phoenician town of Tyree, that the first person that we actually find recorded that actually hears what Jesus has to say and understands it. First time. Every other time it's been like, what is he talking about? We're lost. Including the disciples. And then she goes so far as to answer within the parable. It would appear, and I'm not, don't put a pin in this, but it would appear that she's the first person in the gospel to really hear what Jesus has been saying the whole time, which is very simple, the gospel. It would seem that this, this Phoenician woman is the first person to hear that Jesus is very, very clearly saying, ma'am, you are more wicked than you ever thought possible. You, you are worse than you ever realized you were. And that's bad. But the gospel also says, but at the same time, that you are more wicked than you ever thought possible. You do not reach God's standard. And because you do not reach God's standard, you cannot have a relationship with him. But at the same time, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dreamed possible. That's the gospel. And this woman hears it. She's not too proud to accept what the gospel says about truly how unworthy she is. She's not too proud. She doesn't get bent out of shape. She doesn't attack Jesus for passing over her based on her ethnic background. She does none of that. She doesn't say, I don't have to stand for this. I can do better. I can work harder. I can meet the standard. Just give me enough time. She doesn't do that. But at the same time that she's not proud, she's not also discouraged to the point where she is unwilling to approach this king. She approaches him boldly. She doesn't let her unworthiness keep her from coming to Jesus and taking him up on the offer. See, that's the gospel that we are trying so desperately to better understand as a part of this series. That's the good news. That was great joy for all people. Because really, there's, there's, there's two ways that I, you, we, can fail in accepting the good news, the gospel. There's two ways. One, um, there's two ways that you can fail to let Jesus be your Savior. Two ways. And, and, and there's, they all kind of boil down to these two. One is to be too proud. You're just proud. I, I, don't, I don't really need it. I'm good enough. I'm not going to ask for help. I don't need help. I'm fine. I'm okay. I can approach God on my own terms the way I want no matter what his scripture says. The second is to be inferior, to feel unworthy. Say, well, there's no way that 
God could love me. There's no way that I can be worthy. So what's the point? Um, It's interesting to my eyes how the eyewitnesses routinely in Scripture tell us all of the different ways that Jesus gives people what they need. Each individual account is different. It's very interesting. You may have never noticed this before, but to me this this is very powerful. Because as you read through Scripture, you see it. You see Jesus approaching different individuals based on their need and based on who they are. Let me give you an example. Jesus leaves Tyreek, right? He leaves Phoenician uh, Syria. And he goes to Sidon. This is back to Mark. He's telling us this. He goes to Sidon, which is another town in Phoenician Syria. And then he goes back to the Sea of Galilee, back to Israel. We think of it as Israel. But he goes to the region of the Ten Towns. Now, the Ten Towns, is, it's called the Decapolis. Um, it is an area of predominantly, gen, it's a Gentile area of Israel. It's where most non-Jewish people live. It's a, it's a melting pot. All backgrounds, all cultures, all peoples are in this area. It's kind of in the northeastern, yeah, northeastern part of Israel. And when he gets there, Mark tells us that a deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus does. Verse 33, he leads the man away from the crowd so they could be alone. This is Mark's, and, and I believe Peter, this is their eyewitness account. He, he takes the man away so they can be alone. He, he put his fingers into the man's ears. He spits on his own fingers. He touches the man's tongue. He looks up to heaven and he sighs. The word sigh actually is, is translated, can be, it's groaned. He, gro- he moaned. And then he says, Ephaphtha, which means be opened. And instantly the man could hear perfectly. His tongue was freed so he could speak plain. Miracle, right? Cool, awesome. And something that we've mentioned a lot in this series is how Jesus can heal how he chooses, right? He, he, can, he can heal how he chooses. Jesus can heal from a distance. He, he did it with the woman in Tyree. He can heal with a touch. One time, the gospel writer Matthew tells us about a time that a woman actually just touched his robe and was healed. So all of this extra stuff that Jesus does with this particular man in this particular town on this particular occasion is interesting. Why? He he takes the man away from the crowd. Right? He points to the man's ears. He touches his own tongue. He takes the spit, the saliva, and he puts it on the man's tongue. He looks up, and he sighs. He groans. He moans, and he says, be open. Now, we know that Jesus requires absolutely no arm waving. There is no miraculous ritual that has to be done. There's no mumbo jumbo that's necessary. I mean, he he heals how he wills. Jesus needs absolutely nothing to summon his power. And yet, he does all of that. Which means the only rational reason for Jesus doing all of this extra stuff is not because he needs it. Jesus doesn't need it, but the man does. I don't want that to go over your head because, man, that, that may be the, one of the more powerful things that we say this morning because so many people are dealing with so many things right now. Jesus doesn't need all of that. That guy needs that from Jesus. Think about it. With the Gentile woman, just earlier, 
He's a bit mysterious, right? You know, he's speaking that mystical, uh, polytheistic language. And she gets it. She understands it. She connects the dots. And yet with this, this man here, this, this deaf, mute man, he's very sweet because that's what this man needs. Yeah, there's many, many other examples in Scripture. Um, we miss it, but it's there. Think about it. When Lazarus dies, when Lazarus dies, we talked about that back in December. Um, remember, Martha comes out and meets Jesus on the edge of town, right? And, and Jesus is, and she says something to Jesus, and Jesus is kind of rough with her, right? He kind of rebukes her. And then, immediately following Martha, uh, Mary, the sister, comes out, says basically the same thing, and Jesus weeps with her. He deals with people the way they need to be dealt with. He he gives them what they need. Over and over and over and over again in Scripture, we read how Jesus has different responses for different people based on what He knows they need at that time. That is our King. That is the King that Mark is describing. And that makes total sense because Jesus, the Messiah, is also described as the wonderful counselor. Of course he's going to approach people like this. Makes sense. And it sounds pretty good. I mean, I'm not sure where you fall on this whole Christ following thing, but I mean, if nothing else, it sounds good. So with all that in mind, I want to go back to the man in the Decapolis, the Decapolis. Because Jesus has identified with this man on an incredibly emotional level. And I want to be very careful not to put words into Jesus' mouth here, but it almost seems as if, if you read this and you know the background and you know the context, it almost seems as if Jesus is using sign language here. Almost. Again, I'm I'm not saying that's gospel, but I'm just, man, you look at this, and it almost seems like Jesus gets the man away from the crowd. No distractions. Focus. Let's go over here. Let's go over here. Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. He points to his ears, he points to his mouth, as if to say, I'm, I'm going to, hey, I'm going I'm to take care of that for you. He looks up, because it's all about him. And if we stopped right there, you would leave here this morning, and, and if nothing else, you would leave here thinking, ah, that's pretty interesting. That's, I've never thought about that before. But we can't leave it right there, because that's not what the record tells us is the end, because Jesus... The record tells us that Jesus does something else because Jesus is going to identify with this man on an incredibly deep level because he looks up and what does he do? You remember, he sighs. He looks up and he sighs. He, he, he moans. The word, the word, it means moan. Apparently, Jesus lets out this moan and you know and I know and they knew what a moan meant. What a groan. It's an expression of hurt. Across all cultures, all backgrounds, all languages, this is something that humanity understands. When someone groans, they're hurting. Always has been. And so right here, what Mark is describing for us is our king, the creator, God, connecting deeply somehow with this man's pain that he's in. There's an emotional connection. And I don't want you to go past that because why would Jesus be in pain? I mean, you would think that on the surface, we look at this and you would think, well, Jesus would be like on top of the world, man, grinning from ear to ear. He knows what he's getting ready to do. He's getting ready to change this man's life. But he's not. He's not grinning ear to ear. Because it seems as though there is a cost. There's a cost. 
for Jesus healing this guy. It seems as though there is a cost to all of this, all of this stuff that he's doing and he's been doing. It gets to the point of there's a cost. I want to read you something from the Old Covenant. It's in Isaiah chapter 35. This is talking about the coming Messiah, the coming wonderful counselor, the coming king of kings. 700 years before Jesus shows up. 700 years, and you, that's true. Historically, that is it's actually 700 plus. Isaiah writes, tell those who panic, be strong, do not fear. Look, your God comes to avenge. With divine retribution, he comes to deliver you. Then blind eyes will open. Deaf ears will hear. The lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. 700 years before Jesus shows up, Isaiah wrote that the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to do these things. Which is why. As you and I are sitting here, this is, this is the magnitude of what it is we're trying to unpack this morning. As we're sitting here 2,000 years after Jesus, and we're reading what Mark, an eyewitness, and Peter, an eyewitness to these things wrote down. And the other eyewitnesses wrote down as well. And we're reading this. We're seeing them describe Jesus and his life and what he did and what he said and, and, and the things that happened connected to him. And it is, it, it's as if 2,000 years later we read this and it's like they're saying, don't you see? Jesus is doing all of these things all over Israel. The blind can see. He's making the deaf hear. The lame are running. The mute are singing. Everything that Isaiah said would happen is happening. We saw it. We wrote it down. This, this, this is Jesus, the Messiah. They're just saying to us, Jesus is God. He is God who has come to this earth to save you. Jesus is the king. He's the one we've been looking for. He's the one that they wrote about. This is him. We are seeing it. And when we read this, I, I think when we read this within all of the context that we've just provided and, and what we've been talking about as a part of this series, I can't help but think to myself, wow, that's, that's incredible. It's, it's incredible. And, and But some of you or some of you watching us online, listening later on during the weeks, months, years, you may be thinking to yourself, I don't, I don't know that I buy the whole Jesus is God and the creator. And I, I, just, I don't know. I don't know that I believe that. Okay, but for you, at the very least, kind of makes you go, huh, it is interesting. I don't know that I buy it. Boy, it sure is, sure is coincidental that these things happened in this order. Because just as Isaiah said would happen, the Messiah came, did all of those things. He came with divine retribution. But see, this is kind of the point of the gospel, and this is where the Jewish culture actually kind of misses it a little bit. But us on the other side of the cross, we can kind of see it with, with maybe through a better, more clear filter. Because they thought Jesus was bringing retribution. The Messiah was bringing retribution. That's what Israel thought. But he actually came to bear 
the retribution. Not bring it, bear it, take it, own it, wear it, whatever term you want to use. Jesus came, the Messiah came to bear the retribution of the nations on the cross. That's you, that's me, that's us. Which I believe explains why Jesus looked up and he groaned. He sighed. Because on the cross, the king, the son, the son of God, this child of God, on the cross, he would be cast away from the table. He'd be cast away from the table. This child of God would be cast away from the table. So those of us who are not children of God can be adopted into the family of God and brought to the table. Jesus moved from the table to offer his place at the table for you and for me and for that Phoenician woman. It's on the cross that the child became a dog so that we could become the sons and the daughters at the table. We're going to wrap it up very quickly. Verse 36, Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone. Don't, don't talk about this. Don't let anybody know. They didn't listen. They, every, every, they spread the news, the good news. They spread his gospel. And here's the reason that they spread it. I, I, we're not going to stay here too long, but I, I, this is so significant for just the, the magnitude of what was happening in Israel during this three-year period. They spread it. They had to spread it because they were so amazed at what they were seeing. This is, no one's ever done things like this. No one's ever said things like this. They, they, they said things like, everything he does is wonderful. Everything he does, every, you know, you ever think everything they touch is, is a, that's kind of the, that's the word on the street. Everything this guy, whether, I'm not sure that he's really what he, who he claims to be. I don't know about all that, but man, there's no doubt everything this guy does is incredible. He makes the deaf hear to give speech to those who cannot speak. He's amazing. Now, those are not my words. Those are not Mark's words. He's just relaying what people were saying. Just like Isaiah said he would 700 years before. See, the point I'm trying to make is you can approach this king. You can approach him. That Phoenician woman approached him. And you can approach him. And the reason that you can approach him is because Jesus identifies with you. Because he approached you the way you needed him to approach you. The only way. And so you can approach him. The son became a dog so that the dogs could be brought to the table. That's me. So how do you access God? How do you join up with God? How do you get an audience with God? How do you approach the king? How? Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about you and what it says about me. It says I'm a dog. It says I am unworthy. It says I do not meet God's standard. It says because I do not meet God's standard, I do not have a relationship. And I am. I'm unworthy. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. We are utterly unworthy. But the gospel also teaches, Jesus also taught, and the eyewitnesses relay this information to us, that even though we are utterly unworthy, 
We can approach him. We don't have to be discouraged. and We don't have to be hopeless if we accept what the gospel says about how truly loved we really are. That the king came and he's on his way to the cross. Do not let those things keep you from believing the good news. You may not understand it. You may not get it. You may be like, I'm not there yet. I'm not there. And that's okay. I just want to encourage you to just, just, just keep investigating, right? Just keep investigating. Just keep investigating what Scripture teaches about Christianity, how it works. I'm not asking you to believe that it's true yet. I'm just asking you to investigate. This is how it works. This is what Scripture teaches. Now let's, let's be honest, if nothing else, it's quite a story, isn't it? It's quite a story. A lot of these puzzle pieces seem to fit together so well. In fact, written over thousands of years. All these different individuals, and yet telling the same story. Because this story is the story that the eyewitnesses saw. It's what they saw. It's what they heard. And what they tried so hard to explain for us. And it's a story that, honestly, the last four weeks, now five, we have tried to imperfectly unpack. And it's a story that we're going to pick up again next week. And I don't want you to miss next week. Because we're going to start putting it all together. Because next week we're going to start talking about a king's road to a cross. Let's pray.